0: Welcome to Episode 3 of National Security. I'm your host, Ryan Thompson. And amidst my best efforts to substantiate this show's positions, a prestigious academic named Mary Miller inquired about a claim I made in our second episode. Mary is a highly respected geography expert. She's currently a National Endowment for the Humanities Visiting Scholar, as well as the Secretary on the Board of UCLA's Friends of Geography Organization. Her achievements include the Distinguished Teaching Award of Merit and Johns Hopkins Award for Outstanding Educator. And I'm saying this all to confuse you, into believing it takes a great academic mind to find the slightest thing awry with our show. In our last episode, I told you our audience stats report people from every continent in the world have tuned in to national security. And Mary, who also was my 7th grade world history teacher 31 years ago, kindly reminded me that Antarctica is a continent. If you know anyone living in Antarctica, please tell them to listen to this show. Our returning audience knows I'm liberal which might disappoint any first-time right-wing listeners I lured in with a conservative title like National Security. To them I beg that, if it comforts you enough to stay just for this episode, know that I was born into a Republican family that moved to California to escape the Dust Bowl and Great Depression. Everyone I know in my family, whether living or deceased, has been kind and generous to me, which only makes less sense why they wouldn't want to be liberals, right? Well, considering the Antarctica thing, I'm beginning to worry the problem isn't a Republican one. So as vacantly promised in our past two episodes, I'm finally going to learn something from the right in this one. And with that out of the bag, I beg our liberal listeners, give this one a chance. America is divided by Unite the Right, the second largest tactical rally of American racists in over 20 years, held in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the second weekend of August 2017. Our president's response to the event's tragedy shocked many Americans by his equivocal disdain and sympathy for white supremacist, anti-Semitic, and civil rights advocate protesters. But this is nothing new, as I'll reveal in the words of our most infamous man of the hour, Confederate General Robert E. Lee, in this excerpt of a letter to his wife 161 years ago. In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe, but what will acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. It is useless to expatiate on its disadvantages I think it however a greater evil to the white man than to the black race and while my feelings are strongly enlisted in behalf of the latter my sympathies are more strong for the former Unite the Rights short-term objective was protesting removal of Lee's iconic statue from a public park that was until recently named in his honor This expressly offended the opposing protesters faith in white supremacy the Nazi party or both while the local majority affecting the removal by petition of the city council's vote, believe it's unjust to honor at their expense the racist militant who launched a war costing over a million Americans, the overwhelming majority of whom were white. Unite the Right's long-term objectives are consolidating support for a president and marketing their agenda as Christian, Republican, constitutional, moral, and scientifically sound. Now, I presume anyone living by those values is offended by their misrepresentation, And I accept that perspective is as offensive as the Confederacy is to any African American or rationalizing genocide is to any Jew. Any parents graced by kids bold enough to seek clarity on this are challenged by an ineffective response to the injury of 19 innocent people, fatal mutilation of another, and a co-host of the rally's justification for it all. That co-host is the Daily Stormer, America's leading racist press, which published a profile of the mutilated victim entitled Heather Heyer, woman killed in road rage incident was a fat, childless, 32-year-old slut. Then there's the enigma of David Duke, our former Republican congressman, Republican presidential candidate, Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, member of the American Nazi Party, who declared in solidarity with racists at that rally that we are determined to take our country back. We are going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's what we believed in. That's why we voted for Donald Trump, because he said he's going to take our country back. The Stormer proclaims even greater support for the president in several articles with titles including "Hail Donald Trump: the Ultimate Savior." How can a publication like this sell ads? Well, it doesn't. The Stormer's financed by donations mailed to its registrant's other company, a nonprofit, supposedly Christian family social services center called Morningstar Counseling. A big fan of Duke Trump and the Stormer, is James Alex Fields, Jr the terrorist who, after his uniform protest with the white supremacist neo-Nazi group Vanguard America, murdered Heather Heyer while injuring 19 other innocent people. Before committing those acts, James told his paraplegic mother, whom he once threatened with a knife before beating her into detainment, that he was off to support our president in a rally. To put it lightly, James's mother struggled with her son's immorality, yet James said he's Republican, loves our president, and people often turn out and support one. You know... Between psychotic beliefs that popular religion, racism, and genocide harmoniously coexist, financing violence through religious nonprofits, laying claim to murder and humiliating its victims, it appears the only distinction between American terrorists and, say, the Islamic State is the former approval of our president. One of life's illusions is a misperception that we can understand something before knowing what it isn't. In basic algebra, we calculate all but x to find x. Miners toil over rocks and dirt to produce gold. The pious resolve their own flaws to understand those in others. These clues inspire me to rediscover America's achievements so that I may understand its failures. The only way I know of achieving this, amidst every living politician who's conjured Republican values failing to tell me what they mean, is turning to history. American settlers came up with two unique concepts. They believed a government must operate by will of the people, and taxes must be paid in exchange for their representation. By those tenets, they defined the word Republican, which became the motivating sentiment of our revolution. Probably the most famous early Republican philosopher was James Madison. Educated by Presbyterians, fluent in Hebrew, yet never a church or temples member. But Madison was offended when Christian Anglicans arrested Christian Baptists for preaching without a license. This exemplified what Madison called the infringement of civil rights upon which he worried that without separation of church and state, freedom to practice any religion, a free press, right of assembly, and petition of government and trial by civil juries, America's experiment would ultimately kneel before another king, and he didn't mean God. To preempt that fate, Madison authored our Bill of Rights, by which he petitioned amending our Constitution as proposed. The civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience by any manner or in any pretext infringed. The people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments, and the freedom of the press, as one of the great bulwarks of liberty, shall be inviolable. No state shall violate the equal rights of conscience, or the freedom of the press, or the trial by jury in criminal cases. The people shall not be restrained from peaceably assembling and consulting for their common good, nor from applying to the legislature by petitions or remonstrances for redress of their grievances. Madison's unique and risky proposition of the people instead of certain people is why there's still a United States of America. Months into America's first presidency, every state but Virginia, which followed suit a few years later, agreed to amend the Constitution Madison co-wrote with parts of his Bill of Rights, including those we mentioned— Unfortunately, prior to the advent of a Republican Party, those amendments were rarely practiced. This hypocrisy of ratifying a constitution compatible with the Founders' scriptures, natural laws, and sciences, only to ignore its practice for 66 years, is exclusively understood by sins as old as Moses. All the Founding Fathers who contributed Republican ideals to our Constitution were slaveholders, and most of the Convention delegates were Anglicans who despised Baptists. Incredulous? Yes. But there's an American political invention hiding therein. A notion that while nobody's perfect, there's no excuse for not trying to be. By this paradox, Americans legislated the right to free one's slaves in 1784, a ban on slavery north of the Ohio River in 1787, and a total ban of the international slave trade in 1800. They're all impressive firsts, yet not enough to disagree that American civil rights progress at an inexcusable pace. But like Gandhi and King preceding him, it wasn't easy for Abraham Lincoln to sacrifice his fate for that of his country upon becoming the first Republican president in 1861, whereby America's bloodiest war deliver racist, spiteful capitulation to the Republican values of our Constitution. Cynics like myself perceive Lincoln's presidency as a slightly bigger baby step, but you'll be hard-pressed to find a like-minded African American, generations of whom Lincoln inspired to bear through a begrudgingly improving justice system for 156 years and counting, While their faith and success leave me no excuse to remain cynical, I can't ignore their toils debt to the cult of Robert E. Lee. Virginia, the state host of Unite the Right, celebrates a Robert E. Lee Day since 1889. Originally occurring on Lee's January 19th birthday, the state changed it in 1983 to occur every third Monday in January, which happens to be the year Martin Luther King's holiday was established on the same date upon which many states without Robert E. Lee holidays established their own on King Day, though a few, including Virginia, have since moved or removed them. But to keep Lee from stealing all the credit, several states with Robert E. Lee holidays also observe Confederate Memorial Day on April 26th for over a hundred years. All this terrorism and holiday fever inspired my search for a list of Lee's memorials, but I only came up with a partial one, comprising seven sculptures, one building, three decommissioned ships— Two vehicles, nine streets, one highway, a church, 17 schools, two colleges, three settlements, and nine counties. And I'm still trying to understand why. Because Lee never held public office, and amidst being a Democrat, most of these memorials are in states voting red throughout recent history. On the other hand, Ulysses S. Grant was a two-term Republican president, the prevailing United States Civil War general that Robert E. Lee surrendered unto, the strategist who divided and encircled the Confederate army. He created the Department of Justice, aggressively prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan, passed the 15th Constitutional Amendment providing African Americans voting rights, passed three Civil Rights Acts to defend it, prosecuted corruption in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, appointed the first Native American commissioner to it, established the Treaty of Washington, established America's first national park at Yellowstone, and to Madison's chagrin, designated Christmas as a national holiday. Yet there are no holidays honoring Grant, and his memorials pale and to Lee's. While Grant had his hands full, other Republicans like John Allen Campbell, who Grant twice appointed as the governor of the Wyoming Territory, pioneered the application of constitutional civil rights on other fronts. One of Campbell's first gubernatorial acts was establishing women's voting rights for the first time in U.S. history, which in turn inspired Republican Senator Aaron Sargent of California to author the 19th Amendment as follows, The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex amidst the civil and environmental accomplishments of Grant's era. Its honor was degraded by the Whiskey Rebellion, a scandal over distillers bribing government officers to evade federal taxes. The Whiskey Rebellion concerned Senator John Sherman, one of the anti-slavery activists who had formed the Republican Party, enough to sponsor the Sherman Antitrust Act against abusive business practice, and Republican President Benjamin Harrison signed it into law. Yet corporate fraud grew widely unpunished over the next 11 years until Republican President Teddy Roosevelt revealed a similarity between corrupt business practices and the Confederacy, being that both hide behind state governments to defraud a nation. This connection proved strong upon Teddy's declaration that "...our government, national and state, must be freed from the sinister influence or control of special interests, exactly as the special interests of cotton and slavery threatened our political integrity before the Civil War." So now the great special business interests too often control and corrupt the men and methods of government for their own profit. For every special interest is entitled to justice, but not one is entitled to a vote in Congress, to a voice on the bench, or to representation in any public office. The Constitution guarantees protection to property, and we must make that promise good, but it does not give the right of suffrage to any corporation. The true friend of property, the true conservative, is he who insists that property shall be the servant and not the master of the commonwealth who insist that the creature of man's making shall be the servant and not the master of the man who made it. The citizens of the United States must effectively control the mighty commercial forces which they themselves have called into being. Of course, there are many sincere men who now believe in unrestricted individualism in business, just as there were formerly many sincere men who believed in slavery, that is, the unrestricted right of an individual to own another individual. These men do not by themselves have great weight, however. The effective fight against adequate government control and supervision of individual and especially of corporate wealth engaged in interstate business is chiefly done under cover and especially under cover of an appeal to states' rights. Teddy filed 44 antitrust suits which either broke up or regulated the largest transportation and energy companies of his time. He created the Department of Commerce and Labor, passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, passed the Meat Inspection Act and established the U.S. Forest Service to protect around 230 million acres of land, some of which is better known today as Yosemite, Rio Grande, Crater Lake, and the Grand Canyon. Teddy expressly defined his conservationism in environmentalist terms, as he reasoned in the following White House opening statement, We have become great because of the lavish use of our resources, but the time has come to inquire seriously what will happen when our forests are gone, when the coal, the iron, the oil, and the gas are exhausted when the soils have still further impoverished and washed into the streams, polluting the rivers, denuding the fields, and obstructing navigation. In hindsight of America's economy since Teddy's presidency, I can't find a reason to denounce his sweeping business and environmental regulations. But amidst his achievements, World War II introduced a new corporate challenge to America, the bloodthirsty enterprise of an otherwise successful, newly privatized defense industry. Like many Republicans before him, Dwight Eisenhower swallowed his pride to inform the people of this threat in his final presidential address. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this... Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Disarmament, with mutual honor and confidence, is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment as one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy the civilization which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. What didn't take Eisenhower's entire presidency to realize is racism's inexcusable threat to national security. As a general, he witnessed segregation's ultimate objective within pits of lifeless families across Europe a whore so ripe for denial that he ordered a massive photographic survey of it, of a fate he knew African Americans weren't immune to. African Americans, whose unflinching military sacrifices for all people, returned them to the country that kidnapped their great-grandparents as the people most Americans refused to eat, learn, ride, or live among. Another motivation for Eisenhower's insight on racism's national security threat was intelligence on Nazi spies posing as anthropologists on Native American reservations, while soliciting Nazism as a solution to their oppression. Fortunately, the operation failed. 44,000 Native Americans served the U.S. military in World War II, and a few hundred Navajo Marines developed the only spoken secret code that has never been deciphered. Major Howard Conner of the 5th Marine Division declared, Were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would have never taken Iwo Jima. Hence Eisenhower's first State of the Union speech reaffirmed, quote, the equality of rights of all citizens of every race and color and creed, end quote, to justify America's first attempt to end segregation, by force if necessary, even if it took the 101st Airborne Division to get seven African American children into the school their parents' taxes paid for. The challenges heroic Republican leaders endured to barely uphold their values in America may be daunting enough to silence most voters, yet not enough to keep some of those leaders from perceiving all intelligent life in the universe, whether friend or foe, is entitled to America's good faith. We evidence this beyond Earth inside America's first spaceships, where there are messages inscribed upon plaques aspiring for otherworldly diplomacy. Back here on Earth, these values uncannily emerge from American soldiers' realizations that the enemy isn't a foreign country's people, but a foreign country's people deceived by a fraud upon their civil rights. This clash between moral conscience and civilian casualties inspired America's top military leaders in World War II, both of whom were Republican, to oppose nuclear war against Japan in defiance of popular opinion. As Supreme Allied Commanding General in Europe, Eisenhower recalled the Secretary of War's atomic inquiry as quoted The Secretary, upon giving me the news of the successful bomb test in New Mexico and of the plan for using it, asked for my reaction, apparently expecting a vigorous assent. During his recitation of the relevant facts, I had been conscious of a feeling of depression, and so I voiced to him my grave misgivings. First, on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary. And secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives. It was my belief that Japan was, at that very moment, seeking some way to surrender with a minimum loss of face. The Secretary was deeply perturbed by my attitude. There are also many accounts of Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, General Douglas MacArthur's perspective on the nuclear campaign. The day after Hiroshima was destroyed by an atom bomb, MacArthur's pilot, Weldon E. Rhodes, wrote in his diary that General MacArthur definitely is appalled and depressed by this Frankenstein monster. MacArthur's aide, Norman Cousins, recalled, When I asked General MacArthur about the decision to drop the bomb, I was surprised to learn he had not even been consulted. What, I asked, would his advice have been. He replied that he saw no military justification for the dropping of the bomb. The war might have ended weeks earlier, he said, if the United States had agreed, as it later did anyway, to the retention of the institution of the emperor. A 1946 entry in Republican President Herbert Hoover's diary reveals, I told MacArthur of my memorandum of mid-May 1945 to Truman, that peace could be had with Japan by which our major objectives would be accomplished. MacArthur said that was correct and that we would have avoided all of the losses, the atomic bomb, and the entry of Russia into Manchuria. Any of you wondering about the contents of that memo that Hoover wrote to the President may take a guess in review of his remark to Truman at the White House around the same time, which was, The use of the atomic bomb, with its indiscriminate killing of women and children, revolts my soul. On the 40th anniversary of America's nuclear attack on Japan, Republican President Richard Nixon recalled, MacArthur once spoke to me very eloquently about it, pacing the floor of his apartment in the Waldorf. He thought it a tragedy that the bomb was ever exploded, MacArthur believed that the same restrictions ought to apply to atomic weapons as to conventional weapons, that the military objective should always be limited damage to non-combatants. MacArthur, you see, was a soldier. He believed in using force only against military targets, and that is why the nuclear thing turned him off. Nixon's crass remark about soldiers being turned off by the nuclear thing, as if he disagrees, isn't harmless. It contrarily reaffirms his unrepentant aspirations for Vietnam and whatever would have become of America and result of them. Because the American people have never been consulted on nuclear war plans, Nixon's nuclear perspective is best understood in review of two recorded calls he had with National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger in 1972. In the first one, Nixon declares, We're going to do it. I'm going to destroy the goddamn country. Believe me, I mean destroy it if necessary. And let me say, even the nuclear weapons if necessary. It isn't necessary, but, you know, what I mean is what shows you the extent to which I'm willing to go. By a nuclear weapon, I mean that we will bomb the living bejesus out of North Vietnam, and then if anybody interferes, we will threaten the nuclear weapons. But a week later, Nixon recants, I'd rather use the nuclear bomb. Have you got that ready? And Kissinger replied, That, I think, would just be too much. So Nixon rebuked. A nuclear bomb. Does that bother you? I just want you to think big, Henry. For Christ's sakes, the only place where you and I disagree is with regard to the bombing. You're so goddamn concerned about civilians, and I don't give a damn. I don't care. Now here's a dilemma. Amidst no imminent devastating threat to the U.S. by the close of World War II, top Republican military leaders and the preceding Republican president opposed nuclear war against Japan, primarily because it conflicted with the party's values and our government's principles. Yet a few decades later, after other countries developed nuclear arsenals, A Republican president proposed nuclear war against a country far less threatening than the Axis, and he refused to consider the plan's impact on civil rights, simply because he didn't care about them. It may seem that Nixon's hypocrisy toes the line of Republican slaveholders authoring our Bill of Rights, or a Republican president establishing African American voting rights before women's. But Nixon's predecessors recognized their moral shortcomings. They risked their lives to improve civil rights, established laws to outlast opposition, and never denounced America's principles. In contrast, Nixon didn't struggle in aspiration of Republican values. He deceived Americans to lucidly disavow them, at the expense of Americans, if not America itself, by any Russian nuclear response to his proposition, had it been approved. Yet there are similarities between President Nixon, the current shape of his party, and its most publicized constituents today. For example, white supremacist Christian propaganda, neo-Nazis Republican disguise, or the military-industrial complex devastating countries for profit— in operations named after Nazi generals, like Desert Fox. So how do we solve this? Just adding Nixon to our mental list of inexplicable American frauds will only lower our faith in humanity. We must discover and remove what the list depends on, because American Republicans, Christians, Jews, and Muslims have been robbed of their identities, and the world will be a better place upon returning them to their rightful owners. The identity thieves I'm talking about are an inseparable pair, One's been revealed several times before, but nothing positive came of it, nor ever will, without identifying its accomplice. The hint is, it's a group, and the surprise is, its members aren't to blame, if we ever want to succeed. As far as I know, Congressman Churchill C. Camberling first revealed this group in his speech to the Tammany Society in 1831. Whenever majorities trample upon the rights of minorities, when men are denied even the privilege of having their causes of complaint examined into when measures which they deem for their relief are rejected by the despotism of a silent majority at a second reading, when such become the rules of our legislation, the Congress of this union will no longer justly represent a Republican people. John F. Kennedy and Ted Sorensen also referred to this group in their 1957 book, Profiles in Courage, as follows. They were not all right or all conservatives or all liberals. Some of them may have been representing the actual sentiments of the silent majority of their constituents in opposition to the screams of a vocal minority. These two sightings of the silent majority, as far as I know, are its only accurate representations. Contrarily, Nixon's 1969 appeal to keep the Vietnam War going is a typical, unscrupulous invocation of the silent majority. Here are excerpts of that speech. I recognize that some of my fellow citizens disagree with the plan for peace I have chosen. Honest and patriotic Americans have reached different conclusions as to how peace should be achieved. In San Francisco a few weeks ago, I saw demonstrators carrying signs reading, Lose in Vietnam, bring the boys home. Well, one of the strengths of our free society is that any American has a right to reach that conclusion and to advocate that point of view. But as President of the United States, I would be untrue to my oath of office if I allowed the policy of this nation to be dictated by the minority who hold that point of view and who try to impose it on the nation by mounting demonstrations in the street. For almost 200 years, the policy of this nation has been made under a constitution by those leaders in the Congress and the White House elected by all of the people. If a vocal minority, however fervent its cause, prevails over reason in the will of the majority, this nation has no future as a free society. And so tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. Look, we already know Nixon deceived Americans into believing he wanted peace in Vietnam, in review of his nuclear plans and declassified recordings. What's rarely understood about Nixon's silent majority address is his fraud to replace Americans' understanding of Republican values with things like racism, blind faith, despotism, and other enablers of mass corruption. Yet it shouldn't surprise you, in review of what it means to be Republican, why the Republican Party was this fraud's primary target. When Nixon conjured the silent majority, two-thirds of Americans believed the war in Vietnam was a mistake, and one-third of Americans were strongly opposed to it. To put this in perspective, public opinion wasn't divided across party lines. The Vietnam War was started by Democrats and perpetuated by Republicans. And the anti-war protests developing from it were the most passionate, well-organized, and perseverant of their kind. But Nixon wasn't mixed up on who the majority and minority were. Sure, the speech was about Vietnam, but the majority he addressed weren't most of the war's proponents. And the minority he baited them with weren't anti-war protesters. They were civil rights protesters the ones who just silenced Nixon's majority with a Civil Rights Act based on Republican values. Yet amidst their silence at home, their sons were louder abroad. In 1967, from Saigon, Vietnam, General William C. Westmoreland, the soon-to-be Chief of Staff of the United States Army, poignantly acknowledged the following to Time Magazine Deputy Bureau Chief Wallace Terry, I have an intuitive feeling that the Negro servicemen have a better understanding than whites of what the war is about. Terry was clear on the meaning of this statement because he was African-American. As a battlefield journalist, he also witnessed Westmoreland's insight upon describing his brother's enduring, quote, the racial insults, cross-burnings, and Confederate flags of their white comrades, end quote. Until recently, the silent majority were racists of varying degrees that Nixon sought to indoctrinate in a war via blasphemous portrayal of Republican values. While the plan modestly delayed the war's end, it overwhelmingly replaced Americans' understanding of those values. Here we begin to recognize racism's political value to the corrupt, or as Eisenhower put it, its threat to our national security. In every irrational hate group, there is a vulnerability, a button, so to speak, to engage their equally irrational allegiance to powers otherwise known as enemies of the people. Although America unintentionally discovered this button, it was exploited as quickly as a scientific discovery. The term civil war is an oxymoron. Though I can't come up with a better alternative to its expedient end of U.S. slavery, the fact remains that war is humiliating. By the Confederacy's great sacrifice to hate and destruction of the South's economy, an unjustly prosperous society was thoroughly humiliated. Because humiliation breeds spite, many racists held out on our Constitution during the Reconstruction. After touring 10 ex-Confederate states, journalist Russell Conwell reported, Portraits of Jeff Davis and Lee hung in all their parlors, decorated with Confederate flags. Photographs of Wilkes Booth with the last words of great martyrs printed upon its borders. Effigies of Abraham Lincoln, hanging by the neck, adorn their drawing rooms. The rebellion here seems not to be dead yet. An average white Southern 24-year-old woman named Sarah Catherine Stone entered the following diary passage in 1865. All honor to J. Wilkes Booth, who has rid the world of a tyrant and made himself famous for generations. Surratt has also won the love and applause of all Southerners by his daring attack on Seward, whose life is trembling in the balance. How earnestly we hope our two Avengers may escape to the South where they will be met with a warm welcome. And Sarah's perspective was popular. As apparent in the Demopolis Herald's article entitled, Glorious News, Lincoln and Seward Assassinated. Lee Defeats Grant. We have been favored with the following private dispatch, which we hasten to lay before our readers, with the hope that it may prove true. The operator at Meridian has just telegraphed me that Memphis Paper State, over the signature of Secretary Stanton, that Lincoln and Seward were both assassinated the same night at Washington City. Lincoln was shot through the head in the theater. Seward was slain while sick in bed. A gentleman just from Selma says that it is believed in Selma that Lee and Johnson had effected a junction and whipped Grant soundly. Unscathed by Lincoln's assassination, Republican values prevailed over the Confederate's second attempt at sabotage, and by wasting their opportunity of an honorable capitalist living, their wealthier comrades employed a new breed of sharecropper the poor white racists. Ex-Confederate farm owners openly questioned white sharecroppers' ability to compete against their black counterparts, who by generations of slavery had owned mighty skills. As intended, the white sharecroppers were humiliated into a fierce competition to the farm owners' benefit. But the farm owners hadn't anticipated a byproduct of integration. Even staunch adversaries can find a common cause working together, thus many croppers unionized for a fair deal and the farm owners were just as colorblind in beating those croppers until they could be replaced by machines. Over time, humiliated and impoverished white racists produced varying degrees of racist offspring. Some feared dark skin, others just didn't want it in their neighborhood. Others could accept it if their grandkids stayed white. And a nobler kind cast African Americans in plays of their revised heritage. But the humiliation remained in each degree. It was just a question of cause by loss or guilt. Those conceding just enough guilt to feel humiliated went into a political hibernation, and those humiliated by loss converted the South into a segregated Confederate museum. When World War II came along, every kind of racist defended all Americans, and because of it, their service paid off in spades. They returned as fathers of a new legacy, acquired valuable new skills. Their financial dispositions were obscured by valor. Many networked with fellow soldiers across the nation, obtained lucrative careers, and became homeowners. Their position on Republican values had no impact on the foregoing. And that's bittersweet, because it's better to reward progress than it is to humiliate it. African-American veterans returned to a different beat, because many racist vets in their communities misperceived newfound glory as a return to paradise lost, or an opportunity to take the white out of sharecropper. By the peak of World War II, defense contractors began hiring African-Americans to maintain demand. So around 10,000 working, tax-paying African-American families moved in to satisfy America's needs in Los Angeles. Their settlement was interdicted by the Los Angeles Housing Authority, which refused to offer vacancies to African Americans. The Culver City attorney dispatched wardens to pressure white residents into signing pledges against real estate deals with African Americans. The pastor of the tax-exempt Wilshire Presbyterian Church sued to evict his African American homeowning neighbor by claiming violation of a racial deed restriction, and these are few among many similar injustices. In response, the federal government helped settle African American families in Venice Beach. But when its white residents disapproved, they tried Compton, which only resulted in fervent white protest. Finally, Watts, an integrated town, reluctantly accepted their new neighbors, before its white residents promptly fled. So racists could bomb and vandalize the town over a hundred times for the next 15 years. But that stopped when Watts' black residents snapped into violent protest. Because as far as racists could tell, blacks were finally playing their designated roles in society. You'd think any racist majority in control of local government would be proud of their hateful actions. But many, if not most, weren't. They hid behind policies and costumes to distinguish themselves from roles they played to children, friends, and Republicans. But Nixon saw through it. And though it wasn't the button he most wanted to press, he humiliated the silent majority on television as a weak people doing nothing about those civil rights advocates walking all over them. And he offered them a proud new way to sabotage the Republican Party by becoming it. And when they did... America forgot what it means to be Republican, by which the corruption it defended against prospers. The silent majority is dramatically different today than it was in Nixon's time. Many, if not most, its constituents despise the idea of hate crime, or at least knowing about it. And they're generally fine with African American neighbors, friends, and relatives. To be clear, they aren't today's white supremacists or neo-Nazis. Those groups are just the ones who can't proliferate without their votes. Why does today's silent majority vote to support white supremacy? They don't. They're inclined to vote for a tax break, or a candidate who compliments their impression of themselves. But if a corrupt candidate offers them a tax break, they're still bright enough to vote against them, presuming they aren't angry. Angry about what, though? Blues? Jazz? Track and field? Baseball? Football? Basketball? Comedy? Dance? A big chunk of our GDP or a minority's peaceful legislative prowess? No, it's none of the above. You see, the silent majority, like all human beings, get angry when people humiliate them for trying to figure out what is right. Now us liberals need some help getting this one. If I tell you I forgot Antarctica existed, you might think I have a sophisticated sense of humor. And if we leave it at that, I'll brush off a trivial mistake and carry on with this show. If a rural southern white woman tells you she's not racist because she has a few black friends, we might call her a racist. Or maybe the peanut gallery on CNN will, and in turn the one on Fox will tell us we think porcelain toilets are racist. Humiliation breeds the silent majority. And when corrupt politicians deceive them, we believe only war can bring us together. Innocent people die by the hundreds of thousands. Our pensions vanish. Donald Trump becomes president. White supremacists Nazis attack unpunished. We all grow afraid of learning from our mistakes. By which we all forget what it means to be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Republican, or otherwise humane. When we can stop humiliating each other and start asking others to help us understand them with open minds, we'll finally debate the fate of who's really fooling us all. This concludes Episode 3 of National Security, a show about peaceful solutions to political problems. If you enjoyed it, please review or rate us on iTunes and tell someone to listen. If you have questions about this show, or are curious about the research behind it, or believe we reported something in error, please email... National security at us and I'll respond as soon as possible. At least until next episode, I hope you and I remain strong enough to be peaceful.